We live in a very interesting time. A single entrepreneur, a one person enterprise can make millions. And Justin Welsh, my guest today has proven it. He has scaled his diversified solopreneur business to tens of thousands of newsletter subscribers, hundreds of thousands of dollars in annual revenue. In this interview, we talk about his writing process, the structure of his business, and why his model is a more sustainable way to work. Check it out. So I want to really quickly give people a picture of the business that you're building because I would say it is relatively distinct and really relatively specific to this current era. Internet, uh, you know, wide adoption of these different digital platforms. There's a lot of nuances there that I, I want to get into, but just to give people a picture, you've got a diversified solopreneur business. How do you define it and at what kind of scale is it at? Solopreneur is a word that I've sort of attached onto. And to me, it's just pretty simple. I'm a, I'm a one-person business. So I don't have any employees uh, in my business. I don't have any writers, content creators, nobody building systems in the back end. I have a virtual assistant, a part-time virtual assistant. But outside of that, it's just me. And the diversified part of that is how I build my business through multiple revenue channels. So starting with, um, you know, when I came out of work in, in 2019 and went out on my own, I started with kind of a consulting and advising business. And over the last three and a half years, that has changed drastically. I actually don't do any of that anymore. Now I have about five or six different ways underneath the umbrella of what I do to make money for my business. And so diversified solopreneurship to me is just a one-person business who makes money in multiple different ways. And that's what I talk about online every day. It's what I preach every day. And it's what really powers the lifestyle that I want to build. And when you say diversified, I think that a lot of the the content that you put out is trying to make the, the process of building a solopreneur business more legible and more accessible to people. That's right. And your products that are, or your, your businesses that are diversified are still within that realm. Like you're not jumping from like, I've got this like online course business for landscaping companies and a podcast for fishermen. And like, like you're not like all over, it's still very kind of narrow. And then would you, how, how do you define it in terms of different businesses versus different products? Yeah, it, it's, it, it's interesting. So you're right. First of all, um, you know, people always come to me and they say like, Hey, I really like, um, I really like writing and I also like juggling and I like movies from the 1950s. Can I build like three separate business around those things? Of, of course you can. I think it's much more difficult, but for me, I think of each business as its own standalone product, right? So you could call it a product. You could call it a service. I just tend to call it a business. And for me, they are all aligned around my customer. I think a lot of people always think like, how can I, how can I do things that are similar? And for me, it's more like, how can I help my customers achieve the goals that they want to do through different mechanisms? Because not everyone has the same budget. Not everyone has the same learning style. Not everyone has the same time. And so when people have different budgets, times, and learning styles, you need products and services that meet or match those different things so that if someone doesn't want to do a 60-minute call to learn something, they can watch a 30-minute video or they can read a three-minute article. And so I try and produce products and services underneath th this umbrella that matches up with time, budget, style of learning and, and kind of so forth. And this is a universal thing, right? Like there used to be one iPhone 
and now there's a whole, you know, litany, a whole library of iPhones. You can go to the most high end, spend, you know, over a grand on the device, or you could buy something that's a couple generations older that doesn't have the max processing power, and that's going to still get the job done. You still have an iPhone, but those are two very different buyers. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that, that's how I think about my business, right? So like there are also, there's also sort of a, it's linear, right? There's like, there's people who are very much in the start of their journey, trying to build online businesses, trying to start e-commerce, trying to start knowledge businesses, whatever you want to call them. And like, there are some folks who have never even dipped their toe in the water. There are other people who are doing six figure MRR, right? So they're doing a hundred grand, 150 grand recurring revenue every month. And they want to take it to 250 or 300 grand. Those people require different products and services. And I like to think myself of myself as somebody who covers the spectrum. So I, I'm, I'm pretty niched in on folks who want to build one person businesses, but I do cover the spectrum of like, I'm just getting started. It's day one, or it's like, this is my fifth year and I'm trying to scale to 5 million. And so that's why I create this diversified portfolio of products and services people can shop from. So given that you're probably thinking more about the archetypal customer that is either in the process of building or aspires to build a solopreneur, can you help me to better understand who that person is and what qualities they have? Because as much as I came across you really through the lens of creating compelling content. I'm a content guy. Mm -hmm. Like how do we storytell effectively? How do we use content to market effectively? But I... I had a co-founder to my company, we're up to seven people. I am a people person. Like my whole shtick is I, I, a day that I don't interact with a person is like a bad day to me. And my kind of superficial uh, assessment is there's probably the solopreneur has a little bit more of like the introvert um, lack of a desire to just like have that as a part of their ideal day. But can you articulate more of why this is such a growing trend? Yeah, I think it's, it's different motivation. So for example, look, look at myself. I, I was motivated early in my career to build a massive startup. Like I started as a, in tech in 2009 after like seven years of pretty much failing at everything I tried. And I got really lucky, got to a really great tech company. And as I got into the tech business, I started my first business that I was a part of ended up becoming a unicorn. Then I left that company and became an executive and at a second company. And that company became a unicorn. I was the chief revenue officer. And like my whole drive was like, I'm going to build the next 100 million, $1 billion startup business. And over the course of like five years, so many different things changed for me. What changed for me were like some physical health issues. I started having panic attacks. Like I started recognizing that there were some other things in my life that were more important than building the next billion dollar business. And so, by the way, there's nothing wrong with building a, a unicorn business by, by all means, go for it. But my motivation started to shift. And what I started to focus on was like, how do I build a more intentional life? And so what I see in folks who kind of are attracted to solopreneurship is they're not building a hundred million dollar rocket ships. They're building a lifestyle business, a business that allows them to intentionally design this life that they've dreamed of. And the solopreneurship and the products and services that they offer underneath their umbrella are simply a means to living that life. So whenever I'm talking to, to people about it, if they're saying things like, you know, then I want to scale up and hire 10 employees or a hundred employees or build the next unicorn. I'm probably not the guy for them. If they're saying, hey, this is where I'm at in my life. These are some you know, realizations that I've had. These are some things that have become really important to me. Um, and here's how I think about how work fits into my lifestyle, but it's lifestyle first. That's generally the, the folks that I want to help and the people who I think are going to uh, probably get the most 
from the products and services that I offer. That makes it, that makes sense. I, I do I do agree strongly with the notion that you know not every company is even capable, nor should be, nor do you want it to be like taking outside funding and going on some sort of stratospheric uh, growth trajectory. And I do think that uh, my, the other perception that I have with the solopreneur is it's kind of tied to the remote work, location independent business, which is a different flavor of, of lifestyle, which probably also enables you write your Twitter thread, you you design your your LinkedIn course, you do your online coaching call. And that could be from, you know, central United States, that could be from Europe, that could be from wherever you want it to be. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a flavor of solopreneurship is this like lifestyle, like this nomadic lifestyle. It's, it's not for me. Um, you know, I, I live in upstate New York. I don't travel the world and, and run my business. I mean, we, we go on trips, but um, that, that's not my flavor, but it, it is something that this allows, right? Because these, most of these businesses are content powered. What's really helpful is that you can go from place to place to place. You can put up your content, you can send it out there, you can get the ball mo- moving and suddenly there's, you know, a piece of living content that's out there in the ecosystem doing the work on behalf of your business. And so, yes, it, it lends itself to people who want to do that. But that's, in my opinion, just one flavor of solopreneurship. Now, when building a solopreneur business like this, I think about sequencing and you reference that mm-hmm. you have these different products and you know the more products that you have that meet your kind of ideal customer and buyer at different levels, the, the better you're going to be able to monetize. Um, but do you see the content and the audience building as a prerequisite to the first product? Or how do you think about those two kind of uh, assets being developed in, in unison? I do. I do see it generally as a prerequisite. I, I think there are some instances where it's less applicable. Um so for example, if you're in a very, very niche sort of market, like yesterday I was talking to a guy who's a top 1% loan officer in the United States. And there's like, there's not a lot of people reading content about loans, right? So he's not going to have a million followers on on social media. I think he's got 10,000, but he's well known. He's got those 10,000 followers and he sells a very high ticket item. It's $4,900 item that he sells. And so for him, like he built an audience, but it doesn't have the sheer numbers that you might come to, uh, to, to expect of a seven figure earner, which is, which is what he is. But for everyone else, for the most part, like that's a, an outlier example. Having an audience is a, pre- a prerequisite because once you have an, audi- an audience, you can kind of go in whatever direction that you are most interested in, especially if you're really good at tying the audience less to your products and services and more to you as a person. So the first step in really going out there and building really any business now is to get some attention. And that's what I usually educate folks to, to focus their, their their primary time on is to go out and build this audience so that they can use this audience to fund their business over the course of time. And it really seems like LinkedIn and Twitter are the two platforms seeding into uh, an email newsletter that you think is the kind of reliable model for getting a business like this off the ground audience wise. Um. Sort of, yeah. It's it's what worked for me. Um, generally, my goal is not to push people through a system that worked for me. It's to understand their outcomes and who they are as a person, and then to recommend a system for them. So, so for example, um, I like to write. 
So I chose LinkedIn and Twitter because they lend to writing, right? I don't like to be on video. I, I mean, I don't mind doing things like this, but I don't really want to turn the camera around on myself. That hasn't been something that I enjoy doing. And so you're not going to see me on TikTok or YouTube or you know Instagram stories. Um, but if someone else likes to do those things, then I'm going to recommend that they pick a channel that they enjoy. Because to me, the thing that's most important in this game is consistency. And the easiest way to be consistent is to do something you like. So if you don't like writing, don't write. If you like recording video, record video. And so to me, it's just it's, it's about the person and, and what they enjoy and what their intended outcomes are. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, in terms of using writing from a sales standpoint, your background was you know, selling SaaS and, and operating and, and leading sales teams. Can you talk about the connection there? Because I think that a lot of people also think of like the salesperson as, you know, we're getting belly to belly and I'm convincing them or they're just raw charisma on, on a call. Yeah. But, you know, great copywriting is, is really where there's, um, you know, loads, loads of wealth and riches to be mined. It's a function of being forced. So I'll kind of tell you what I mean. Like the way that I wanted to build this business was to have as few daily obligated interactions as possible. So like, I don't want to wake up in the morning, look at a calendar and have six sales calls. Like that is my nightmare right now at this point in time in my life, right? Like I want to do a lot less of that, even though that's the background that I came from. That's how we sold in my previous SaaS companies. So once I recognized that the way that I wanted to to design my life was by not doing that, I had to have a different alternative. And so the alternative for me was like, okay, if I don't want to be doing sales calls, how do I sell something without showing up on a call and having a 30-minute discovery call and a 40-minute pitch and a de- you know a deck and all that stuff? So I, I thought, oh, well, everything I point to, it looks like copywriting. Copywriting is the thing I keep hearing from everybody that I talk to. And so that once I figured that out, it's a matter of going out and just educating yourself on how to do it. So I became a student of copywriting. And I think that most people think becoming a student means doing what they did in school, reading a lot of books, reading blog posts, watching videos. I read one book and then I went out and started trying my hardest to reproduce what I learned in that book. And my copywriting has been a function of like getting better over three and a half years. And that is from action, not from you know studying it. So uh, I think I've gotten pretty good at it. I've written... 1900 unique pieces of written content over the past three and a half years. And it's like, it's like anything else, basketball, baseball, sport, any sport you choose, the more you play and the more you practice, the better you're going to get. Yeah. It's so, it's so fascinating how common that response is. Cause I like, I see the ads, you probably know who I'm talking about. It's like, you know, the average CEO reads 60 books a year. You have to read that many books to be successful. And then all of the practitioners I know, there's definitely a, a segment that read a ton of books and that's their whole model. But the practitioners who are just in it, doing it day after day, are getting their inspiration from all sorts of diverse sources, but have actually built the skill through being there in the arena with consistency. Practice is the number one way to get good at something, right? It's like, there's a reason that NBA teams practice in between games and don't read books about basketball. Like, I don't think reading is a bad thing. I'd be silly to think that reading had a, had a bad you know, connotation, but um, in and of itself, reading does nothing. It's a collection of knowledge. It's what you do with what you read. And so I see a lot of these folks out there who are like, my goal is to read uh, 52 books this year. 
Your goal should be to read a book and then take what you learned in the book and then take action on what you learned. That that's a better goal than just reading 52 books without taking any action. Unless of course you're just reading for enjoyment or fiction or whatever. But if you're trying to do something like put the book down, push the ball forward, and you're going to learn a lot more from your prospects and customers than you do from reading somebody else's advice, which by the way, has a ton of context that, you know, every piece of advice has so much context. It's some of it's just so not applicable to us. So at the, at the risk of, you know, stomping on the exact piece of advice that you just shared, um, the, the art of the tweet, you know, speaking of great writers, Shakespeare said, you know, brevity is the soul of wit. And you do have your character constraints to get a point across quickly. Yes, there's threads and other ways that you can extend the amount of information that's conveyed. But in terms of pushing your memes, your stories, your your content into the most densely packed, powerful uh, package possible, can you tell us what you've learned about getting better at that process, regardless of the field, the industry that you're communicating in? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the first thing that I generally do is I throw something sloppy together. So like I get an idea, like something sparks my interest. It's a conversation with a peer. It's a conversation with my wife. It's a podcast, whatever, whatever it might be. Something sparks my interest. Once that happens, I just kind of throw everything into a piece of paper or on you know my publishing tool online and I just dump the idea down. That's the hardest part. <laughs> Staring at a blank screen is the hardest part. So once you dump an idea onto your publishing tool or a piece of paper, you at least have some clay with which you can mold, right? So that's where the molding starts to happen. So I look at the idea and I say, okay, there's generally a few things that are helpful, right? One is cutting 30 to 40% of the unneeded words. And there's a ton of unneeded words. Once you read through an idea, you're like, oh, I, I could say that sh in, in a shorter fashion. I don't need to use that word. This is this word doesn't lend any value to the rest of the tweet. So generally, it's cutting cutting things, right? The second thing I want to do is I want to put it into a structure, style, or format that is pretty easy on the eyes. And since most people are on their phone scrolling Twitter, I want it to be compact. I don't want it to flow over the screen and you know have one line become three lines. So keep it short, tight, really think about that mobile view. And then give me some spaces, right? So like, don't make it a long biblical paragraph, just like don't don't line break every three words like that looks ridiculous but like put spaces where there should be spaces so that it's easy on the eyes outside of that it's like cutting words putting it into a great structure style or format then i look for ways to elicit emotion so emotion is generally elicited in a few different ways the first way is by using words that really kind of get your heart thumping or or really um i, I use the word like viscous it's not the right word, but it's like uh, it's like the word is really it gets you to stop, right? It's a it's a real face puncher, and so I actually have this like verbal wheel that I look at where I've got these words that are like sad, happy, angry, and like the further it goes away, it shows you how to take those words and make those words uh, more visceral. That was the word I was looking for to make those words more visceral, right? So um, once I've cut thirty percent of my words, put it into a better format started to add some visceral uh, words. The last thing I'm doing at the end is like, when I finish reading this, how do I feel? Do I feel angry, combative, sad, happy, or do I feel nothing? And if I feel nothing, then to me, it's like, okay, we need to figure out how to get more emotion into this thing. Because I want someone to feel some way when they've done reading it so that they start engaging, adding comments. So that's like a four-step sort of simple process for writing. 
Yeah, it's so interesting that you said that uh, the the concept of you have to feel something uh, or that like you don't want the attention lost because I'm blanking on his name, but he 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 built Gimlet, uh, the media company that was sold to Spotify. I'm, I'm blanking on the guy's name right mm. now, and he talked about his process for this like very narrative style podcast. You know, at, traditionally NPR and This American Life, but it's now spread all over the place. And when he was the editor and he was trying to build teams that could create a podcast as compelling as the standard that they developed at Gimlet and at This American Life, it was always, where are you losing my attention? It's like, wow, this was compelling. Mm. And if it's, you know, a 13 minute story at minute five and a half, like I feel myself start to wander as you guys talk to me. And that's not my fault. The same way you would recognize it's not the audience's fault if this isn't engaging or if they don't make it to the bottom of my newsletter or the bottom of my Twitter thread, that's on me. And that exact moment, if you can identify it, is where you have to double down or or iterate or or fix whatever is broken that, that failed to stimulate some sort of emotion. Yeah, think think of like, especially long form writing, think of it like a treasure map, right? If you look at an old fashioned pirate treasure map, you've got like the, the dashes that indicate the path and then the X that indicates the treasure. So the X of a piece of long form copywriting is simply the end of it. Right, so you want people to get to the X, to the end of the the, the piece of content that you've written. The dashes is, are, are the journey, and if you go back and you read a, a newsletter that I produce, there's a reason my newsletters can be read in less than four minutes. I think you can be compelling and have something that's twenty minutes, by the way. But like for me, brevity again is kind of king for me. My goal is when I read through my newsletter to say like, is there any place in this newsletter where there's leakage? Right, and leakage is basically like someone churns out of reading it. Right. And so as I go through that, I I put myself in the reader's shoes and say, like, is this sentence interesting? Is this paragraph interesting? Is this building on what I said before? Is this just like some something that doesn't need to be said at all? And can I remove it? And my goal is to take people through something that they can learn in less than four minutes every Saturday. And um, I'm I'm hopefully getting better at that, you know, as I produce now my 43rd, you know, newsletter in a row. So that's how I think about it. As a technical part of that process, do you think that you can do that? You talked about the brain dump uh, portion, then there's the kind of refining portion. And then that final like edit overview, can you do that all in one sitting? Do those have to be at different times of the day or on different days? Like just technically to, to execute that at a high level? You can, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, you know, a good friend of mine, you know, Dickie Bush, a really prolific writer and his his buddy, Nicholas Cole, you know, they always told me when I first got to know them, like, you should write and edit on different days. And I was like, I wasn't doing that. I'd write and edit in the same day. And then <clears throat> I just decided to try it. So like I wrote a piece of content, um, jammed it into like Hype Fury or Publer or whatever publishing tool I was using and then slept on it. And what I recognized is when I came back like the next day, I had a new lens. You know, you feel differently day by day. You're a different reader the next day. You're, you're not just a different writer, but you're also a different reader. So I would revisit the content that I had written the day before. And like, sometimes I was like, this sucks. This is terrible. Like I thought, I thought it was so good in the moment. And the following day, you know, your brain works differently at 7 p.m. when I wrote it the day before and 8 a.m. the next morning when I'm reading it. So I think it's a really good sort of exercise to go through where you're continuously separating out the creative process and the editing process. I, I don't know if this is as good advice for, for a business writer necessarily, but it's an Ernest Hemingway thing too. He'd write drunk and, and edit sober. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess I could have just said that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, so talk with me. So when we do videos and we'll coach clients or we'll be producing stuff for ourselves, one of the most important things that we always uh, consider is the open hooks of the introduction. So, you know, there's a different way to consume it when it's text, but with video, particularly a platform like YouTube, we can see the average view duration uh, chart and how that falls over time. And just by definition, the highest leverage moment of a video that you produce is in the first 30 seconds. And so what we're always optimizing for is here's, you know, the promise of this video that we're, we're going to deliver to you. But then also what we call an open hook, which is basically like some loop that isn't yet completed that the audience probably once completed that we then promise on completing later on in that mm-hmm. uh, a video. Talk about some of the similarities with a writing standpoint in terms of creating open hooks that get someone into a piece of content. Yeah, I mean it's it's different for different platforms, but um, let's take like let's take LinkedIn because it's the platform I've been on the longest, and you know some people there's a lot of people who don't like LinkedIn, but if you can figure it out, like it's really good for your business. I can tell you that much. Um, So LinkedIn is interesting because every piece of content on there is almost like a tweet thread because there's 3000 character limit and there is essentially a fold in the content. So as you're scrolling, you see like a certain number of characters and lines before the reader has to choose to take an action. And that action is to click this button that says, see more. So everything that I want to do, all the hook has got to come above the fold. My goal is to get them to click see more because once they've clicked see more, they've sort of... Um, guaranteed the fact they're going to keep going, right? They've committed to reading the rest of the content. And so for me, I'll generally use three simple lines. Like the first line is the face puncher, right? It's, it's not a politically correct way to say it, but like it should be a line that punches the reader in the face. It should be stern. It should be standalone. It should be visceral, like we talked about before. It should get some sort of emotion. The second line that I generally use is either an empathy line to let people know like, hey, hold on. I know that first line was visceral, but like, stay with me here. I I see how you're probably feeling after that. Or it's just a context adder, right? It's just adding a, a little bit more context to the first line. And then the third line is generally the hook line. So if you think about like radio advertising, right? Um, you've all listened, we've all listened to morning shows before. I know they're not as popular anymore, but like we listen to a morning show and it's like, they, they go and they're so like, they give you like, Hey, did you know that 31 children got sick from this very strange food? We'll tell you when we come back after the break and you're like, Hey, I got to know what that is. Right? Like how, how about you tell me now? And so that's, that's sort of how I think about the hook, which is like, I tell them what I'm going to deliver if they just click that little see more button. And then once you do that, you're into like the meat of the content, the thing that you guaranteed, the thing that you teased out, you have to deliver that thing, right? And then at the end of delivering that thing, I like to recap and ask people to engage. So that's that's LinkedIn. Twitter's not too dissimilar, right? The opening line's got to be really, really face punching, right? He's got to like get someone, I call also call it scroll stopping. So people are just scrolling through their phones nonstop all day. It has to like get people to stop the scroll and pay attention. And so often I'll just write in a very similar fashion to, to what I shared on LinkedIn. But for me, it's all about, it's all about getting them to the end and then actually delivering on the thing that you teased out, which I think is where a lot of people fail. I think a lot of people fail on social media because they share platitudes. They share things that everybody knows, like, Hey, um, smart work beats hard work. We all know that, 
right? Like it, it, it sounds interesting when you write it down, but it's not hooky. It doesn't guarantee the reader's going to learn anything. You don't deliver anything there. And so that's how I just think about, I guess, open loops and open hooks when I'm writing. And it makes it easier to, when you actually know who it is that you're speaking to. So I always think about the platitudes uh, and and the kind of mostly sending, you know, trying to sound like Naval Ravikant or something as exactly. being the result of either just trying to emulate him because he's so popular or not having clarity as to who you're speaking to. When you're trying to speak to everyone, that's really the only way, like, you, like you're basically, you know, the, you're going to emulate the best and that's like, you know, maybe not Naval, but like Buddha and like these other just like, you know, very open philosopher kings. But sure. the actual efficacy of audience building as it pertains to a business outcome, particularly when you're in the early stages, is having a lot of clarity as to what the problems are that my potential customer is facing and then not really going beyond that. That, that's exactly right. So that's what that's what I mean when when I say like people are sharing a lot of platitudes. They're also sharing a lot of philosophy, right? Everyone wants to be the next Naval, or they want to write like Sahil Lavinia, or they they want to write like whomever, right? So they emulate those folks, thinking that that's going to deliver the outcome that they're looking for, and it won't. Uh, it, it, when you're building a business, you have to generally help people achieve the outcomes they want to achieve. And so the first thing that you need to do is talk to your prospective customers. So who are you serving and what are their problems? And it's really, it's it's nearly impossible to be successful if you don't talk to your prospective customers, if you don't spend hours with them in the beginning of your business, days, months, talking to them, understanding their biggest challenges and understanding the outcomes they want to achieve. If you don't do that, there's almost, there's almost no sense in writing for them. And um, I think that's where a lot of people miss is they think of content creation as um, interesting or... Um, you know, sounding like somebody else who they see having success, but they don't see the backstory of what led up to that success. And so that's why you see a lot of plagiarism and people sounding similar. That that was ex you perfectly led into my next question, Justin. Which is, um, you know, there's these two two arenas that I pay attention to in the content world. One is the uh, and and I don't mean this disparagingly, but like it's the best way to describe is it. like the business think fluencer. And then sure. uh, this other arena, which is stand-up comedy. And there's this problem of if you live your whole life in like the stand-up comedy club, you're just hearing everyone else's jokes. And then like all your inputs are literally other people's jokes, other people's ideas. And it's really hard to find a distinct voice in that space. And if you're the exact same, you know, consumption model of the business thinkfluencers, there's almost like a, a boundary by which you can even go you know, say something novel in some way, shape or form. So prior to this refining and the structure that you have to the content you create, actually getting raw new inputs, obviously, you know, customer interactions are going to help, but where else do you find yourself going so that you can have a novel distinct voice and not sound like everyone else? Yeah, <clears throat> it's a really good question. Um, so I try not to live in the echo chamber of like business think fluence or Twitter. I think that's the worst thing. Like I did that a little earlier on in my career. And what what happens is everyone starts to sound the same. Like I started writing on LinkedIn. I have a course. It's got 7,300 students. So there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people on LinkedIn writing like me. Right. And so like I'm, I'm at fault partially, partially for that. But the, the first thing you have to do is be cognizant of it. Right. You have to say like, you have to look around and say, I look and sound a lot like everybody else. So how do I make myself a more obvious sort of solution 
And by solution, I mean like, how do I make myself the obvious choice um, to pay attention to in this world of sameness? And so you have to kind of go outside of that. So things that I do is like, I watch, I watch movies that I think are interesting, interesting documentaries because documentarians are really good at presenting information in a clear and compelling way. Um, this may sound really silly, but like I look at people like Taylor Swift, right? She's a musician, but she's a content creator and she's really good at figuring out interesting and unique ways to bond with her audience. So like she doesn't write on Twitter and LinkedIn, so there's no chance that I'll be, you know, copying a style, but I go I go out and I look for little things that she does to like get her audience so compelled by what she's doing. So I'll watch a, a movie about her, I'll watch an interview with her to see how she talks about album releases. So those those are some ways as well. And then outside of that, it's actually mostly having really smart conversations with really smart people. Most of my content that is differentiated that I share doesn't come because I scroll through Twitter and LinkedIn to get inspired. Uh, it, it comes because I spend time having a beer with someone who's really, really intelligent. We get into a really deep debate and out of that debate or conversation comes te 10 fresh pieces of content that sound unlike anything that, uh, that anyone else is writing. So I think removing yourself from that echo chamber is, uh, chamber is step number one and then finding some interesting ways to be influenced is step number two. So then, I mean, you can't leave that hook and have us not uh, not finish it. What's something you took from Taylor Swift, like really specifically? What she do particularly? Yeah, I yeah, I think there's there's a couple of different things. I think one is just like her ability to play on the past. So like, if you listen to all of her lyrics, there's and I I probably can't think of one right off the top of my head, but I'll try. There's a lot of like, remember when? Remember when you were a teen? You sitting in your car, your first kiss under the tree. There's just like a lot of like really vivid imagery that is about your past, the good old days, right? And she paints a very, very vivid picture of the good old days. And when you listen to her songs, especially in, in because she's a woman and she's often writing from a, a, women, a woman's perspective, her audience, probably mostly female, right? Um, they can see themselves in the lyrics, right? They can imagine sitting in their car when they were 16 with their first boyfriend. Like they can, see, they can, they can vividly see all those things. And so when I go on Twitter and read content, I don't see a lot of vivid imagery. I see a lot of bullet points. I see a lot of, you know, um, I see a lot of just really crisp writing, but not a lot of long-winded imagery. So something that I've been trying to do more recently in my writing is to paint a more vivid picture so that the reader can feel like I'm either having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them or that I'm actually inside of their brain describing a way that they definitely feel. So that's something that I, I took from her. Yeah, I, I always say it's a very similar thing with video is if a part of the hook you can make the person feel seen. And sometimes we'll even use videos as like part of a, a funnel as we're trying to move someone towards towards a close. And if you can actually give those exact words and that vivid imagery to the, the pain or the problem that the person finds themselves sitting in, once they feel seen, they open up, like they're willing to offer more of themselves to you. And, you know, in your case, there's a lot of automation. So I don't necessarily know if there's like that, like back and forth, but th that is still the, the experience that one wants to. Yeah, I wrote something the other day, and it was um, when I say it was popular, like it, I, um, it it drove revenue, right? Which was like I wrote generally, like most content on social media, is lines and dashes and bullets and short sentences, and I just wrote a rambling sort of eight 
run-on sentence that should have probably been eight sentences, but inside of this sort of rambling, incoherent mess, I tried to paint this really graphic picture of the juxtaposition between my business and the corporate world. And because it was almost like it kept going and going and going, it almost just built on itself. And if you understand what it's like to be a solopreneur and you hate the way the corporate world works, as the lines went and as the story went, you felt more and more familiar with the content. You're like, yes, yes, yes. It just, it kind of, that was the feedback I got from everyone on this piece of content where they wrote and said, this was like extraordinarily vivid imagery. I could feel you sitting in your house and I could feel the juxtaposition against corporate America. And so I took that from just listening to an interview with her the other day. And I was like, I'm going to try and replicate this in a way that in writing versus in music. And so it seemed to work. So in terms of tracking and knowing that it's tied to revenue, you said that like with, with authority, like, hey, I did this and it turned into revenue for the business. How are you going about accurately tracking all the, you know, the sources and the, and the data and the inputs of different revenue events versus like I, I just when I think about the solopreneur, I know there's a lot of you know digital tools at your disposal, but to some degree, like tracking every little micro thing isn't necessarily the aspiration that most people have. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily know that I track every micro thing, but essentially what I'll look at is pretty simple. Like I'll take a look at impressions, engagement, and comments on a on a piece of content, and then I'll go into my Fathom Analytics. I use Fathom Analytics and I'll just see, okay. I I, posi- I posted this today on this particular platform, like how much traffic from that very specific platform came to my website today? Click of a button. Very, very simple. Okay, cool. From that traffic, from that particular social media platform, where did they go? Right? I can see what newsletters they read. I can see what products they viewed. I can see what services they looked at. And then I'll just run a, a quick analysis, right? Like back a napkin math. Okay, cool. For each person who came from social media channel X and visited product Y, what was the conversion rate? And I know my pretty standard conversion rate across the board each day. And so I can see how content drives visitors and how visitors turn into $2 pretty easily. And there are two things that I look for. Did I have a significant spike in web traffic? And if so, did they convert at relatively the same rate? That would show a popular piece of content and my website doing a decent job of converting. Or did I drive like the normal amount of traffic and did my conversion rate greatly improve? And so if my conversion rate greatly improved, I'll just look at things like, okay, what what page did they uh, uh, go to on my website? Were they mostly on one product page, mostly on one service page? If this product or service page is converting higher than my other product or service pages, why is that? what is it about this page? And then I'll just kind of go through a hypothesis and try and figure out what about that page makes things convert at a higher level. So that's that's basically it. That's just really from my SaaS background. That uh, I, I mean, that's a, a good skill set to have built prior to, to building a business like this one. Sure. Um, I, I, uh, I, I want to aim towards wrapping up before we ask our, our standard last questions. Um, we had a previous guest, Marshall Haas, who is in certain ways similar in certain ways different, where he has... Uh, conglomerate of these different businesses where he is either the majority or sole owner. Uh, but yep. these are not solopreneur businesses. These are, you know, I think I think his one company, Support Shepherd, has uh, dozens, if not over a hundred people. He has an e-commerce brand. There, there's a, a, a physical reality, real estate, real estate, yep. a, a physical reality to this. And the challenge that he ended uh, his interview with us on was uh, delegate 
automate or eliminate. And the basic premise is as you build this business, you need to figure out how to get these responsibilities off of your plate onto someone else. You do have the VA and you do have softwares at your disposal, but you've kind of to some degree constrained yourself by saying, I'm not going to delegate other than certain things specifically to a VA. So mm-hmm. when you constrain your aperture to really eliminate and automate, can you talk about building a scalable solopreneur business that, that uses that constraint to your advantage and still is able to grow? Yeah, totally. So I, I, that's, it's very similar process to what, what I run a little slightly different. Mine is eliminate, simplify, automate, delegate. And so the first thing I want to talk about is just how the outcomes influence delegation, elimination, so on and so forth. So my goal is to continue to make the exact same amount of money I make right now for the rest of my life. So I'm not scaling, right? I'm I'm not always in constant scale mode, which allows me to behave differently. If it was like I had to triple, double, triple revenue continuously, like I would be more on the hook for delegating and things like that. I run a lifestyle business. I make really good money and I don't want to make any more, right? Well, I want to continue to make money, but it doesn't need to get bigger, right? So the first thing that I try and do, because again, it's a lifestyle business, number one is eliminate. Most things on my calendar, when I look at them, are unnecessary. And so at the beginning of each week, I'll say like, what's on my calendar today that's like a favor for a friend or something that I shouldn't be doing or part of the 80% that doesn't really push the needle forward? And I'll eliminate that. Second thing I'll do is simplify. Most solopreneurs overcomplicate technology. They overcomplicate email funnels and marketing this and tags and segmentation. It's like, again, could my business be slightly better? Sure. At what trade-off? Complication. I'm not interested. So I simplify, right? Automating. Again, I look through and since I've already eliminated and simplified everything, the only things left to be automated are things that are technology, right? So attaching two pieces of technology together using Zapier. Very, very simple. Once I've done all that, there's there's very little left. And the things that I delegate to my VA are just simple customer customer service tickets, right? Because I don't really want to be going into my email and writing people back about their invoices. So th- that's that's as simple as it is for me. And again, I don't need to feel like I have to hire people onto my team because I want to grow my business. And that's the difference between a lifestyle business and a business that's always looking to scale. And so that's how I think about it. And there's a really important nuance there, which is first, the fact that you put eliminate first, but then also that simplify came before automating or delegating. It makes the tasks, there's few of them, but even the tasks that there are, you're simplifying to some degree, makes it easier to automate, easier to delegate because you're not handing complexity to a software that's not necessarily capable of, of, you know, grokking all of it. You're not handing complexity to a VA that, you know, doesn't have all the context and experience and wisdom that you do. It should be simplified to make those two steps uh, substantially more impactful. That's right. And like by simplifying, you have less to automate and less to delegate because when you start to be really complicated, that's where you need complex automations and much more, many more people to support your business. And so I have a buddy who like runs a business and he's got these, I go to his office, he's got charts all over the wall and complex flows for all of his customers. And like, could I do that? Sure. Would it be helpful? 
Probably. Um, would it put a lot of additional complexity into my business that I would have to figure out how to to live with? Yes. And I don't want to do that. So I don't. Right on. Uh, Justin, this has been fantastic. I appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Anything, uh, before we ask our standard last two questions, anything that you were hoping to share today that I just didn't give you a chance to? No, I thought this was a really, you're a really excellent interviewer. So thanks for asking really thoughtful questions. Very kind of you. Thank you. Um, I want to make sure that people check out uh, all your platforms, even if you are not in pursuit of the solopreneur space. Uh, it is worthy, it is, uh, Justin's a worthy follow just for the quality and the pointedness and everything that he's displayed already about the way he crafts his tweets and his newsletters. Uh, where can people find you in the digital world if they want to do that, Justin? Yeah, the easiest way is my website. It's justinwelsh.com me, which is Justin, W-E-L-S-H dot M-E. And you can subscribe to my newsletter. It's called The Saturday Solopreneur. It's got about 56,000 subscribers. It's 43 issues deep, and it gives you one audience and business growth tip every Saturday morning around 9 a.m. Eastern time that you can read guaranteed in four minutes or less. Right on. I have one more question. This is a, this is a personal question. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm breaking sure. my flow here. How far sure. ahead is your content scheduled out for something like that? Like how, how much of a lead time do you give yourself? For my newsletter, I'm not much ahead. I, today's Tuesday. I normally write my newsletter on Monday for the upcoming Saturday. Um, I have a formula and a process and systems for writing a newsletter within, it takes me about 30 minutes to write my newsletter. Um, and that's really systems-based. Content, on the other hand, I'm very, very far ahead. So I've got my content done through December. Wow. So two, two pieces of content every day for both Twitter and LinkedIn. And generally, it's different content. So it's like four unique pieces of content. So I'm, you know, got 360 pieces ahead. I, I, we average being about two weeks ahead and I feel really good about that. And that just gave me a, a whole no, new bar to go aspire to. So that's awesome. Uh, please check out everything. We'll link it in the show notes to this episode. Going deeperthere.com slash podcast is a place to find it for every single episode of the show. But before I let you go, Justin, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Yeah. My favorite kind of personal challenge is I think, especially if you're interested in solopreneurship, and by the way, solopreneurship can mean running your own one-person business. It could also mean running a one-person side project while you have a full-time nine-to-five, right? So if you want to dip your toe into the water on that, the best thing you can do is make $1, like making $1 will literally change your mindset and you'll you'll kind of unlock this new thought process where you're like, this is possible, right? So my favorite way to make a dollar is, is sort of the following. This is my challenge to your audience is like, everybody has a skill. So the first thing that you should do is go out and talk to your family, your friends, your peers, your coworkers and say like, what, what are the top one to two things you think of me for that you would come to me for, for help or advice? do that. Talk to 10 people. You're going to start to hear things and there's going to be commonalities amongst the answers that you get. Once you get those answers, choose one that you really, really enjoy doing, right? Once you've done that, I want you to go to card.co. I'm not affiliated. C-A-R-R-D, C-A-R-R-D.co and sign up for a $19 yearly plan and build a landing page. And on that landing page, all I want you to do is tell people, prospective customers, the outcome they will get from having a 30-minute conversation with you, right? Once you've done that, I want you to publish that webpage, go onto social media, and for two consecutive weeks, I want you to write one piece of content a day that shows 
prospective customers that you understand their challenges and that you have a viable solution that you can offer them in 30 minutes. Make it affordable. It could be 50 bucks. It could be 30 bucks. It doesn't matter what it is. Write a piece of content every single day for two weeks. When people DM you or write comments on your content, direct them to the website. You will schedule a call. You will make a dollar or $30 or $100. And if you don't want to do it anymore, you can shut it down. But your mindset will have been changed. And moving forward, you will understand how to get started as an internet entrepreneur. That is one of the most precise tactical challenges that we've ever gotten, Justin. We've heard we've had to like, you know, try to make money online before, but that was so precise and tactical. Clearly, you are an excellent educator in the space. I love it. I hope that uh, many, many listeners will check it out, uh, take the challenge, and also check out all the other educational material that you put out there. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Aaron, thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it. We just went deep with Justin Welsh. Hope you're out there. Has a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to the end of my interview with Justin. If you enjoyed it, you would also enjoy our conversation with Marshall Haas. He has a diverse set of businesses, including a recruiting agency, real estate, e-commerce, amongst others. And he has assembled it into a similarly privileged, exceptional life as an entrepreneur and business person. Go check it out.